Well, if you look <clears throat> out that window, don't all rush over and do it. If you look out that window, you can almost see it. You can almost see it. If you just get on your tiptoes and kind of squint and look over the line there, right across the highway, there's a store called Water to Wine. Anybody ever been there? People are like, can I admit that I've been there? I don't know if I'm allowed to admit. You can admit it. You can say you've been there. Water to wine. I've been there. It was a pretty cool place. I haven't been there actually since COVID and the things have changed. But we had a fun night there with some friends on one occasion. Water to wine. We know what that's referring to, right? Do we? Do we know what that's referring to? If we don't, let me make it abundantly clear. Jesus' first miracle, as told in the Gospel of John, is that he turned water into wine. And even if you have never gone to church before, if this is your first time in a church, if you don't know anything about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you've probably heard reference to this miracle. Yeah, Jesus, on one of those occasions, didn't he turn water to wine? Now, here's my observation about that that I want to break down here a little bit for us. Um, this is kind of maybe the most mystical understood maybe the, one of the more misrepresented miracles of Jesus. If we're, if we're perfectly honest, it's, it's become a bit of a, of a joke, right? I've seen memes uh, about Jesus hanging out with his disciples and it's kind of set in a modern setting where Jesus is with his boys and they're going into a thing and then either going to a sporting event and he's, you know, just bringing in water and all the disciples are kind of nudging him and egging him on. Yeah, it's just water, right, Jesus? It's, it's kind of become th this joke. It's kind of become uh, a bit of this parlor trick miracle, right? Jesus, he, he turned the water into wine. How cool would that be? Yeah, if we had a party, we'd want Jesus there. He could kind of keep the things going, right? It, it, it's profoundly and deeply misunderstood. So let me make a couple qualifications. Uh, if you know me, you know I hate to get hung up on qualifications, but I think this is one of those miracles that needs that. We know that the Bible from beginning to end stands against drunkenness. You know, you, know, take, you know, drinking so much that you lose control of your actions, your thoughts, your words, and it leads to bad things. We know that many people, because alcohol is so readily available, uh, many people do struggle with alcoholism and addiction to alcohol. So let's be mature about this. Let's be grown-ups about this. This isn't the invitation to drunkenness. This is not an invitation if somebody struggles with an addiction to alcohol to just say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine and the first communion involved wine, so I'm just going to keep drinking wine. No, we can be mature about this, right? We can be grown up about this because this isn't just about the surface. This isn't just about the thing that happens here, that water gets turned to wine. This is very much about what that means, right? This is very much about the meaning of why Jesus would in a sense go to the trouble, would exercise his power, would transcend the natural and move into the supernatural and to demonstrate what will be revealed as his glory when he turns some water into wine at, and this is going to become profoundly significant, at a wedding feast. So with that qualification, Let's get past this parlor trick miracle understanding of Jesus turning the water into wine and go to God to say, what does this really mean about you 
and what might this mean for me? And let me say that again very intentionally and make that quite clear. We need to understand what this means about you, Jesus. We need to understand what this means about Jesus' revelation and God's kingdom and what he's doing in the world. And only then can we extrapolate from that. And what might that mean for me as your follower? So let's do that. Let's go to the Word of God now and read the first miracle that we have recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. going to start right here in verse 1, and let me read it here for us. You can follow along in your own Bible, on the screen, uh, on your own screen. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Say that with me. Do whatever he tells you. If you take nothing else from this sermon, remember that verse. Make it maybe your theme verse for 2022. Maybe your theme verse for life. (laughs) Because that's a pretty good one. Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I love that detail. They didn't just fill them up. They filled them to the brim. When he told them, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Now, my people... Last week, I introduced us to Epiphany. Epiphany, the revelation of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. The revelation to the Magi when they saw that star and they followed him and found the baby Jesus and his mother Mary and they worshipped him. They were overjoyed. They shared their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, indicating he was the king of all creation, that he was the high priest that would stand before the people and God and make them stand right through his sacrifice. He was the prophet, the living word made flesh who was dwelling among them. All of that and more is revealed in our celebration of Epiphany. Maybe that, again, was something some, many of us were familiar with from ages past, or maybe Epiphany is something new for all of us. But I'm going to mention something just briefly, and then we're going to carry it on all the way up into Lent and our celebration of Easter. This is technically called Epiphany Tide. What a weird word is that? Epiphany Tide. What is that all about? Well, this is where we are going to follow that light. We're going to follow that star, in a sense, to 
where it is leading us. And that is going to be, of course, to our celebration of Easter. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Over the next several weeks, we're going to go on a bit of our own kind of epiphany tide journey. And I'm going to be taking us mostly, primarily through the Gospel of John. And now each one of these miracles in John is going to be revealing more about who Jesus is. More about why Jesus came. More about how Jesus is fulfilling the very plan for our salvation. More about how Jesus is bringing good news to all of creation. Each miracle, in a sense, will be shining more light, shedding more insight. And we pray, drawing us closer and closer and closer to the ultimate miracle, the miracle of all miracles, right? The resurrection that we celebrate on Easter morning. And I say all that because I bet you missed it whenever we read this passage. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm not saying that to act like I know more than you. I'm saying I bet you missed it because I missed it. Like every time I read this before, I missed it even when I've preached on this before. Did you catch what the very first words of the very first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Luke are? Did anybody catch it? On the third day. I was like, wow, mind blown. Obviously, you're not with me. I'm going to have to make it a little bit more clear for, for everybody. I'm used to this, by the way. I get it. I get excited about something, then I have to get you excited about something. I was like, whoa, wait a second. I bet that means something. That he would start his first miracle with that phrase, on the third day. Now, if you did grow up in church, if you have celebrated Easter before, if you've said something like the Apostles' Creed over and over again in worship, that might be a very familiar phrase to you. That is the phrase that we remember on Easter morning. On the third day he rose from the grave. But there is a great tradition, a great meaning embedded in this third day motif. It was on the third day that God created the dry land and brought forth the vegetation, including grapes, that would turn into wine that would be used to celebrate the old covenant and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It was on the third day after Abram traveled with his son Isaac to Mount Sinai. It was on the third day that the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice of the ram was revealed to Abram. It was on the third day after God brought his people out of Egypt, out of their land of captivity. It was on the third day that he revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai. It was on the third day when Jonah was vomited up. Sometimes I like to say words that just catch your attention, but that's what the Bible really says. It was on the third day when Jonah gets vomited up on the dry land. It was having his own, in a sense, born again experience. He who was as good as dead is now alive and able to move forth in mission. And here, John is pointing to something much more when he, in a sense, is going to bookend the miracles of Jesus with this third day motif. Now is it a little bit more, whoa, something more is going on here. There's always something more going on in Scripture. I mean, of course the preacher's going to say that, but let's all just agree to believe that. There is always something more, something deeper, something to be revealed. There's more gems to be uncovered, <laughs> to be celebrated. 
in these gospel stories. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, I always say this, you can claim that for yourself. You know, I mean, that's a great nickname. Change your Facebook update, change your LinkedIn status. I want to be a disciple whom Jesus loves. This is John, the disciple who Jesus loves. But more than that, this is John who's still alive. (laughs) Because the other disciples are pretty much gone now. John watched over the years following that third day resurrection as the followers, the disciples, so many in the name of Jesus Christ were killed for professing that truth and proclaiming him as Lord. People were going to the grave joyfully still proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And yet John somehow manages to get exiled to the island of Patmos. I can just imagine him standing before some Roman court. And they're like, what are we going to do with you, John? And he's like, oh no, whatever you do, don't send me to an island in the Mediterranean. We'll have to live out my days fishing and living in a beautiful temperate climate. No, no, it was, it, it was an exile. He was, he was I mean, it's, it's, if you look pictures, it's really not a bad place to be. But he gets exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He is living out his days there. There's still a community there. And you can imagine then, as he's getting some 40 years, we estimate, we don't know the exact dates, but around 40 years. I mean, like a lifetime of reflecting upon the story of Jesus where people are saying, there's some things that you should probably get down for us before you go. We already have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, we have these synoptic gospels. We have these wonderful stories that tell us what Jesus did and who he was. John here, of course, is taking the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about why it matters and what it means. And truly, like an artist, he has decided to craft for us a gospel that doesn't follow kind of a a chronological linear line. He actually bounces around a lot in his gospel because at each point, at each turn, he's revealing more for us. He's pulling more out of the life and the story of Jesus so that we will understand truly and fully who Jesus is and what his life and ministry meant. In fact, he goes as so far as to telling us at the very end of his gospel why he wrote it. He, he writes, and as, as I alluded to earlier, he only shares really like seven miracles actually and then the story of, of Easter. And then he says, there's so many more things I could have written about. He just says it. I, he, and then he actually uses hyperbole. He's like, the whole world could be filled with books about what Jesus did. He says, I didn't, but I'm not, you know, I'm not writing all that stuff. And then he just, he, he makes this, this audacious abstract. I mean, truly, this is the most audacious abstract ever written in the history of abstracts ever being written. It says, I've written these things so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's an audacious abstract. I'm going to write these things so you can believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he lived and died and rose again, and that by exercising belief, by exercising faith, by just doing this thing like we even celebrate this morning and professing you know, faith in Jesus Christ and participation in, in the body of Christ, his church, says that you might have salvation and eternal life? That is an audacious abstract. But that's exactly 
why John is writing and he, what he wants for me and what he wants for you and he want, what he wants for everybody is so blessed to be able to pick up this gospel and to read the story. By the time he gets to the end, he is actually saying, I want to spend eternity with you <laughs> because Jesus wants to spend eternity with you because Jesus wants you to have life and he wants you to have it in his name. Now believe in these things. Whew, that's a big, big, big lead up for what's going on in this miracle. But again, this is the miracle that sets in motion his story. This third day pointing in a sense, the beginning and the end. There's just so much wrapped up in that phrase. And again, how this is going to be pointing us to where John is going, where he wants all of our lives to be going. After that, he gets into the story. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. By the way, a lot of others have said, and it should be kind of stated, like Jesus and his followers, they are not sour, dour, boring people you don't want around. You know, you, you know it's not just like, oh, you know, you know, don't put it on the social media. You know, Jesus and his followers might show up, and if they follow up, like, party over, then we're just going to have a Bible study all night. Like, no, <laughs> like, like, I do just think it is pretty cool that it's like Jesus and his disciples went to weddings, they went to feasts, they were accused of just kind of being party animals. Again, don't abuse that, don't misrepresent that. But I think the other side gets overrepresented too much. Jesus and his followers are ready for a celebration. They're ready for a feast, they're ready for a good time. So they're there and we can pretty safely interpret and they're having a good time. <laughs> they're having such a good time the wine runs out. Now, you've probably again heard that this is kind of a big deal. Weddings are a big deal. Uh, it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime event for people. Uh, the whole community comes out and celebrates. It's a religious occasion. It's a family occasion. If friends travel from our... It's a big deal. I, I mean, a year's worth of wages sometimes are estimated or are, are put forward for the celebration of a wedding. And the fact that it seems that they weren't prepared for the wedding, that they begin to run out, there's the potential here for great shame great embarrassment, kind of like a, yeah, everything was going well, and then the party kind of ended and fell apart. You know, this would kind of hang over them like a dark cloud. And so it would make sense then in this context that Jesus's mother, again, for any number of reasons that we can kind of muse on, but she's concerned. And she seems to have some kind of faith, some kind of understanding, something deeper is already going on here where she wants to alert Jesus to this need. This need that people have run out, that there just isn't enough. Now, let me say this before I lose the thought, and then we're going to bring it back around to this at the end. This miracle and many of Jesus' miracles are very much about us being in a position where we don't have enough and we need some more, or we just have nothing left, and we've got to go to God. In the beginning of many moves of God in our lives is coming to God with the admission, with the confession, I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. Even saying, I don't have anything left. And what I really feel I need, what I really feel the situation calls for, is for you to step in and to provide. That isn't health and wealth. That isn't name it and claim it. That isn't prosperity gospel stuff. That's just the honest truth of our lives that sometimes we don't have. <laughs> And we need to go to the God who does. 
Sometimes we just come with a confession, with the admission, God, we are really looking for your intervention, your intercession. We are looking for you to intersect with our life in a profound way. And here's the point I want to make about that. And I don't know where I first heard this, probably in seminary, but somebody pointed out, and that's always stuck with me, that miracles at the heart of every miracle, at the heart of every miracle is not this aberration of what is normal, but a return to what is meant to be. Every miracle at its heart is not an aberration of what is normal, but a return to what is meant to be. Because my people, we were not meant to be blind. So when Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, he's simply returning, restoring that which was meant to be. When people are hungry, that is not what is meant to be. So when he feeds them, he is only restoring what all should have in their lives. Whenever he rises somebody to new life through faith, spiritual life, a born-again experience, that in a sense is simply restoring what was intended from the dawn of creation. That is simply restoring what we are created for, the right relationship and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And I think that's a deep understanding we have to have here to say, if this is just a restoration of what is meant to be, what is meant to be is that we should always have enough. We should never go without. What is meant to be is in essence that we should be eternally in celebration, raising the proverbial cup, feasting at the table, dining with our Lord, communing with our God, communing as the people of God in an eternal celebration of glory and praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Every miracle, in a sense, points to what was simply meant to be for us. No blindness, no sickness, no illness, no disease, no mourning, no crying, no tears, no hunger, no thirst, no death. Every miracle is just bringing us closer to what it is meant to be. And this, certainly, no less than that. Okay, so then she says, Jesus, then, then Jesus has this interesting thing. And again, you know, why, why are you involving me? My, my hour has not come. I'm going to skip over all of that. But then uh, th that's just a, an interesting thing. You know, you know Jesus, they, they, they've run out of wine. And I do love the, the humanness of an interaction because we, we do that all the time. You know, like, oh, you know, the garbage is full. You know, nobody told me to take it out, but next thing you know, I'm taking out the garbage. I mean, I mean, heck, we'll be lying in bed at night and we'll be like, oh, it's kind of cold. And I'm the one getting out of bed to get an extra blanket. I'm like, wait, you, you're making a, a, a statement and now I'm following through on things. You know, so I just love the humanness of Jesus and his mom have a real relationship. It's just so mother and son. You know, Jesus, they're out of wine. He's like, oh, it's not my hour, mom. Okay, I know what you want me. There's just something, there's something beautifully relational, you know, about that. There's something beautifully real about that interaction. So then she says, then, then here's where it kind of gets like spiritual or whatever again. And she makes that comment, do whatever he tells you. And again, you can, you, there, I'm just going to invite you to spiritualize that. I mean, I mean, go ahead and spiritualize that because that's just like a good reminder. Do whatever he tells you to do. If he tells you to, you know, come to America, you, you come to America to start a new life. If he tells you to go back to Africa, you go back to Africa to serve a mission. You know, if he tells you to walk across the street and love a neighbor, you walk across the street. If 
He tells you to go back and apologize to your kid or to your spouse or to a friend because you said something dumb. And you go across the street, you walk across the aisle, you make that apology. If he tells you to give away your fortune, you give away your fortune. If he tells you to give a cup of cold water in his name, you, get, you, you, you know, there, there's something that we can just take that to heart and say, just do whatever he tells you. If you are in prayer, if you're in God's word, and you feel those promptings, you feel those feelings, you feel that warming of the heart, you feel that splinter in your brain or you can't get rid of some thought, <laughs> just do what he's telling you to do. Just go with that gut feeling, go with that thought, go with where you believe God is leading you. Just do what he tells you. And then it kind of gets, it gets really deeper here. Um, then we see that he points to the, the six stone jars. And there's much to be made of the meaning of the six stone jars, which I wonderfully, gratefully found a graphic with six stone jars. These, of course, we already have revealed are enormous, 20 to 30 gallons each. We know that these are very crucial, very important. Maybe they're even a wedding gift for this couple, that these would be part of the ceremonial rite of cleansing before coming into a religious ceremony, such as a wedding is. And already we can see that Jesus is going to be in the business of taking what is old and making it new, filling what does the vessels that were created in the Old Testament and the old laws and the old ways of God and what was being revealed through the worship of God, taking what was prepared and now filling it with this new thing, this new covenant, this fresh new work of God. And so there's a beauty here that Jesus says, take these six stone jars and they're enormous. We read that they're 20 to 30 gallons. And if we do the math, which many have done, that's going to equate to somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. This is exceedingly abundantly more than is needed at this time. And that is so beautiful that our God continues to do exceedingly abundantly more. I'm reminded of the prayer we talked about this past fall in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you can ask or imagine. My friends, this is the assurance for us that when we are without God has. When we have a little, he has a lot. And God is just showing off here. I mean, admittedly, wonderfully, gloriously, Jesus is just like, you want a miracle? Mom, you think they need a miracle? You think they ran out? Oh, I'll show you a miracle. I mean, it's kind of like Jesus is like, like this, like upping the ante. He's like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. <laughs> like if we're, if we're going here, we are going here. Get every one of those jars and fill them up. And then I love how it's like the servants, like they filled them up to the brim. And, 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 then, and then it gets strangely quiet. I mean, I mean, so there's this like wonderful juxtaposition of Jesus saying, we're gonna go all in. If you want a miracle, some of you are gonna see just how much I can do. Get all of those jars, fill them up, 900 bottles of wine. This is about to happen. And then this, again, this juxtaposition of it gets strangely quiet. He says, just take some to the MC, to the master of the ceremony here. He doesn't call any attention to himself, doesn't call any attention to what's happening here. The MC takes it and he's like, this is the best. He, you know, he, again, he, he would have no idea maybe that it ran out of wine. He has no idea what was going behind the scenes here. 
you know, he tastes it. And then he like kind of, again, quietly calls the bridegroom. We have this, this uh, imagery of what's unfolding here is they're not making this big deal of, of, about this. He, kind of, he pulls them aside. He's like, I, I, under, I don't know why you did this, but I, this, is, this is amazing that you did this. That every other time I've ever been at a celebration like this, they bring out all the best stuff first. And then as people have too much, they bring out the water down the dregs of the vats, all that kind of stuff. But, but, but you brought all the best stuff forward. I, I just reflected on a theme in my life that I strangely see here in Jesus's ministry, which kind of confirmed it in my life. And I, and I put it this way before, that, that far too often we think that we are supposed to be or want to be or, or people like us if we come in as the life of the party, right? We walk into a room, here's the way I've been phrasing it. I, my, my natural disposition is to walk into a room and say, here I am, give me the attention. I wanna tell a story, uh, you, you know, but here Jesus is walking in a room and saying, there you are, go and give the MC this cup of wine. Let the bridegroom who knows nothing that's happening here get all the glory for what I just did. Again, I'm still, again, I say this often, I'm still like pondering what that means, but it's, it's incredible here that it is revealed that this is one of the first of the signs that reveals Jesus's glory. And yet on the surface, he doesn't seem to be taking or absorbing any of the glory. He's allowing others to have the spotlight. He's allowing this couple to remain in the spotlight. He's allowing this bridegroom to get all the credit. Jesus is so secure in who he is in his powers, in his glory that is being revealed, he doesn't have to put the spotlight on him. That's gonna come. That's gonna come later. The spotlight's gonna be on Jesus and we should always be putting in the spotlight on Jesus. But again, I think there's a spiritual lesson there of just walking into a room instead of saying like, here I am, just saying, there you are. Let the spotlight be on you. Let the spotlight be on them. You get all the credit. You get all the, there's just, there, there's just something beautiful about that. Um, and then I want to just swing back around in my time here. I got just a few, a few more minutes. Um, let's do this, actually. Let's have, let's have Zach come up and get ready to lead us in worship because then I know I have to wrap it up here. So I love that line. Let's end with that line that the MC then says to the bridegroom and that only Jesus and some of his disciples, only those servants knew the story of what really happened behind that. Whenever he said, you saved the best for last. And that is the spiritual point to drive home for all of us. That no matter what situation, no matter where we stand, no matter what our circumstances of life, no matter how little or how much we feel that we have, the best is yet to come. Yes, for the ministry of Jesus, we know that the best is yet to come. We know from water to wine, we've been the healing of the blind, will be the setting of captives free, ultimately leading all the way to the resurrection from the dead. We know that he's going to, in a sense, increase the intensity and the awesomeness of the miracles that he will perform, showing the best is yet to come. We know that the hour is coming when he will be raised from the dead and he is glorified. We know that the hour is yet to come when he will return in glory and reveal for all of creation the kingdom of God as the heaven and the earth collide 
died and the dead arise to new life and all who stand in Christ stand before him in righteousness and we reign in glory with him forevermore at what is described in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. There's that great verse that talks about and we will be a part of the wedding celebration of the bridegroom and the bride, the church, the people of God, the very body of Christ living throughout eternity in this ever growing expansion of his glory and his celebration and this ever expanding experience of joy and delight living more and more into eternity. And our minds simply can't grasp that things can keep getting better and getting better and getting better. And yet what is revealed for us in the hour that is to come, remember when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, what is revealed for us in the hour is not come is that as we move throughout eternity, as we move throughout eternity, as we live into our salvation forevermore, it's not like it gets more boring. It's not like we get tired of it. It's not like, oh, I've seen this movie again. Oh, I've heard this song too many times. Oh, I'm having to eat this again. It's as if what is being revealed then in what is to come, that the best is yet to come, that God is saving the best, is that as we get a taste of it and we understand more of it, it grows more glorious and we love it more. And the further we walk with Jesus throughout eternity, we love him more. And the more that we feast at the table, it's like the feast begins. Do you understand what I'm saying? What is being revealed for us is, is, is not a narrowing of the glory of God. It's not a narrowing of our experience of joy. It's not a narrowing of this celebration that we're going to get tired of and bored of. It's this revelation that the more we experience it, the more we understand it, the more we love it, the more we appreciate, the more we want of it, the more we feast and the more it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And that is the beauty of what begins in this revelation of turning water and the wine to keep this celebration going forward. And we know that the time would come before the hour of Jesus would come when he would gather with his disciples and they would think that he was bringing them together so that they could celebrate the Passover feast. But we know that Jesus was again doing something new with the old. And he pointed them toward this new covenant when he said for them, and now I invite you to prepare your hearts and your minds. And by the way, 